Hi, I'm Richard, the founder of 10 Adventures, and this is the 10 Adventures podcast. Each week, we talk to real people about real adventures as they explore this incredible planet we all live on. I'm excited to talk to our guest today as I recently finished his book, which is a great read about his experience bike touring around Ethiopia. Ethiopia has always been on my bucket list, and today is an opportunity to learn a little bit more about what it's like biking around. I'm excited to have George Balareso, the author of Unhinged Ethiopia, 2,000 kilometers of hell and heaven on a bicycle to the podcast. Hi, George. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's great to be here, Richard. First off, I love the title of your book, uh, and it is. It's such an apt description of the highs and the lows of, of your trip. I thought we'd try something a little bit different. Do you want to read a bit of the book just to give you know, the listeners an idea of you know, what it is? Sure, of course. Uh, this is uh, my book, Unhinged in Ethiopia, and it's about my cycling journey in Ethiopia in 2019, so before the, the Civil War that's occurring right now. And I'll read a passage that's the first chapter of my book. So the chapter title is Shovel Trouble. Do not try to fight a lion if you are not a lion yourself. Tanzanian proverb. Having been on the road in Ethiopia for two and a half weeks and having covered a thousand kilometers, I was finally acclimatizing to high altitude cycling. It was around two in the afternoon and I'd been pedaling uphill since seven that morning. After a hard won battle with the switchback roads, I found respite in a straight incline. With my lungs taking a much needed break, I exhaled in relief. It was the hottest time of the day and my cheeks and nose stung from the relentless onslaught of the Ethiopian sun. At least I was breathing easily again. Two young men toiled in the distance, wielding shovels. They strained as they broke and tossed the hard-baked earth. Growing swiftly larger as I approached, they stopped working and glared at me. My eyes darted around, scanning for the Kalashnikovs so many villagers in the Wolo Highlands carried. The only weapons I saw were used for digging, but I knew these men wouldn't simply let me pass. Suddenly, I was almost upon them. They were both about 180 centimeters tall, perhaps a bit shorter, and appeared to be a bit in their late teens. With their chiseled deltoids and triceps, they looked like anatomy textbook illustrations. Red capillaries mapped menace in their eyes, and the dark rings beneath those eyes spoke of toil and long-standing chat addiction. Chat is green leaves that are like kind of drugs that many people have in Ethiopia. Furrowed brows signaled emotional duress. They had an aura of tough persistence. No doubt the world of chat, cattle wars, and blistering sun had long since robbed them of their innocence. My heart rate shot up and my neck and shoulders pulsed with tense energy, my breathing shallow and rapid. I felt as if I were pedaling uphill again. The desert landscape disappeared as my vision narrowed to the threat in front of me. I attempted to cycle around them, but they blocked my path. My front tire brushed one of their knees. I scanned my surroundings for, for someone else. A priest or mullah, a village woman, anyone who might support me. I saw no one. Malformed cacti towered nearby, suggesting a way of defending myself. Unfortunately, if I had dashed for their thorns, I wouldn't make it in time to use one as a weapon. Money, money, they chanted. The teens clutched their shovels in both hands. Hi, my name's George. What's your name? 
I stuck out my hand and smiled in a desperate attempt to humanize myself and de-escalate the situation. Perhaps they'd realize I was just a guy who was living his dream by cycling from Addis Ababa to the remote desert highlands during his winter vacation. Money, money. They ignored my attempt at a handshake. Are you a student? Where's your school? I asked. Money, money. Their voices rang louder as their eyebrows creased into a V-shape. Once again, I tried to cycle around them. The boy, the boy to my right jammed his shovel into the spokes of my front wheel while the other gripped his as a weapon. We were at a standstill. Time compressed itself and I found myself in a slow motion movie. My thoughts and emotions froze. The tips of my fingers pulsed with anticipation. Each inhalation of my stomach made it tingle. Every exhalation sent adrenaline surging through my body. The feeling was foreign primal, unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. I was ready to battle 20 men without giving a thought to the consequences. Over the course of 20,000 kilometers on a bicycle in Asia and the Middle East, I'd never been mugged. Heck, I'd never even been in a schoolyard fistfight. I thought about my two workout per day routine leading up to the trip, the sets and reps of cleaning and, and jerking barbells, the mountain trail runs in the snow, the ring muscle-ups. These men were 20 years my junior, and if they were anything like I was at their age, probably willing to take risks without thinking deeply about the consequences. The wind suddenly picked up, and the shoveled arm team's shirts flapped in the breeze. The veins on their forearms and biceps bulged underneath their skin as their grip on the shovels tightened. I was oblivious to the waves of sand that blew in the distance, the desert slowly eroding the nearby mountains into new shapes. I glanced up at the sky clear blue without a wisp of white. Two brown vultures circled far overhead, cawing across the empty vault of heaven. If God was up there watching, I was in dire need of his help. Oh, great start to the book. And it's interesting. I hadn't I hadn't thought of that, but the tone of that is it's it's kind of a roller coaster of great kind bad, <laughs> terrible and uh, uh you you framed it so well there at the start. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was uh, quite a shocking moment for for me. I had quite a bit of problems with kids there, but um, but there were always adults around to kind of bail me out and help me in Ethiopia. But I was just me and the two of them out in the middle of nowhere, and it was quite a frightening situation. And they had shovels, and I, all I had was my bike. So, yeah. Let's start at the very start. What got you to the point of, hey, I want to go spend my winter break riding across Ethiopia? Well, going to Ethiopia had always been on my bucket list, so to speak. Um, I'd always been intrigued by the culture. I grew up in, in a suburb in Michigan, and there was an Ethiopian restaurant that I had frequented back when I used to live in Michigan. And uh, it, it started off uh, with the food, quite honestly. I was just, I fell in love with the food, the spices, the, the injera, which is fermented flatbread that's high in protein and vitamins and minerals. And then ever since then, started uh, researching a little bit about the culture and just realized that it's just a treasure trove waiting to, to, uh, for any cyclist or, or traveler. It's the most mountainous country in Africa. They don't have the effects of colonization that other countries in Africa do have. So, um, so you can see a lot of like tribes, indigenous tribes there and, and culture that's still intact. So it was 
I was always on my list and uh, it has kind of a bad reputation amongst the cycling community uh, and just for children that throw stones and um, <laughs> which <laughs> which uh, kind of drew me into it even more because I want I'm always I'm a bit of an adrenaline junkie myself. So I thought, uh, you know, I doubted myself for so long. I thought, can I actually do this? Should I give it a try? Because if you search for tour cycling in Ethiopia on the internet, it's just uh, mountains of, of horror stories about uh, the children and getting, you know, the population can be difficult at times, the local people. So I thought, um, all right, I, I'll give it a try. And I've been a long time meditator too. So it was kind of a way to test my equanimity and see, okay, can I actually like just be one with myself and and overcome my surroundings and maintain a sense of peace and the answer to that quite bluntly was no okay I, I failed every t a lot of the tests <laughs> so as you'll find out if you read the book yeah. <laughs> and so going into this you know i think it's really interesting because you're a very experienced bike tour you've you've done a lot of great trips and so this wasn't a case of you hadn't been in remote places do you want to maybe just share some of the other like big trips you you'd done sure sure well uh it started in in korea here where i live um i started practicing and it was a way just to learn korean quite honestly i'd cycle out into the countryside with no map in 2008 there's no gps and just wrote down some phrases in korean left to right where is the restaurant to um, try to practice korean and then that was the start of it and i just fell in love with getting lost in a place that that was different and trying to find my way around. And uh, after that, I went to my first like longer distance trip to the Pamir Highway in 2014. And I had no idea what I was doing. I just took a big back, a 50 liter backpack with me with a tent and, and an old beat up hybrid bike that had flat tires, like every 50 kilometers or so I was <laughs> I was looking for for tires in these small villages like half the time when when I was in uh, along the Pamir Highway um, so that was my my first big trip and then after that I went to Xinjiang China just to get a little bit more of the Central Asian culture um, I was in Turkey Mongolia Oman Bangladesh even, which is totally different from the, the remote uh, places. It's the most densely populated country in the world. And I'm, that was probably my most worrisome trip, you know, just dodging vehicles. And I remember the first day I got there, I was like, what did I get myself into? <laughs> like, if you've ever been to India, it's got like five times the population density of India. So, and the traffic is just terrible. So I'm just glad I made it out of there without getting hit by a car. So, so yeah, I've been on a few adventures. Yeah. Just crossing the road is tough, let alone trying to be a vehicle, you know, being on the road, trying to compete with all those uh, vehicles. Yeah. When in Bangladesh, I was lucky. I met some local cyclists. There's a big cycling community called BD cyclists and they just took me in and uh, showed me the ropes and uh, I went cycling in groups of like 10 and they all like kind of swarmed around me to guard me and protect me on their bikes and showed me showed me the ropes and uh, luckily I was 
if it wouldn't have been for them, we might not be having this conversation right now. I might might have been become roadkill at some point. You know, the cycling community worldwide is just there's something special about it with uh, uh, warm showers and just people seeing cyclists and wanting to help. I don't know what it is about uh, people that ride a bike, but when you see somebody, you just want to help them. And it's not another, you know, it's, I don't see it anywhere else. Like you don't see it in hiking or walking or things like that. It's, there's something about cyclists. We want to stick together, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Especially it's the good thing about tour cycling is you can get a, a nice connection with the local people. I mean, you're, you slow down and you can, you know, stop in these small villages and the, the conversations are just, you know, that's that's what really draws me to tour cycling is the pace. I just really enjoy the slow pace and um, you really get to soak the environment in as well and, and get a good taste for the local culture. Uh, I, I couldn't agree more. I, I want to go back to your first day, you know, coming from the airport. And, you know, a lot of times you hear stuff beforehand. And they say, oh, this city's terrible. This thing's rubbish. This is dangerous. And I've kind of evolved having like a bit of skepticism when people tell me about all the negatives, because often like some places people don't like, I actually really like it turns out. So, you know, you're cycling into, into Addis, like, were you thinking it's not going to be that bad or were you fully prepared for this to be a really challenging trip? Oh, I was prepared for it to be a fully challenging trip. I mean, going into the trip, I knew about the children and the stone throwing and the mountains and it's, you know, really tough terrain too to cycle. So I thought to myself, how am I going to deal with this? And the solution I came up with it with was to train myself physically with a life or death tenacity. So I would do two workouts per day leading up to the trip for a few months and just I would go for a long run in the cold in the Michigan winter in the morning for you know five to seven miles and then in the afternoon do some weight training really heavy weight training and um, thought okay I'm going to have to like just outrun these kids it on my bike somehow, even though they're known to be some of the best runners in the world, you know, and they're eating injera. And uh, so I'm going to have to do that. And that was my solution. So I was fully prepared to have like a tough time there. And, um, and from the beginning, it was, uh, it was tough. I mean, as soon as I got, got off out of the airport, I was cycling around and for the first maybe 20 minutes or so, it was fine. But then I stopped the bike at a, a traffic signal and uh, some kids approached me and they were just tugging on my bags and and insisting that I give them money. And they just they wouldn't leave me alone for a long time, for at least 20, 25 minutes. I mean, I've been to India, you know, India is pretty notorious for for those types of situations and other places around the world. But uh, but I had never seen children this persistent and actually like pushing my bike and trying to open my bags and take things out while I'm, you know, trying to just walk down the street. And, and the local people were just kind of laughing at me. They were like, Oh, look at that. They call them Farangis, like the, the foreigners. They like, look at that for Farangi, like in those kids, it was just like entertainment for them from the start. So, so yeah, it can be frustrating. And I was fully prepared for, for a challenge going in. And, you know, read through your book, you know, obviously cycling, you're at high altitude and, you know, that's a challenge. You're being chased by kids going up hills, trying to get away. 
Um, but, you know, kind of the takeaway is just like the human relationships were different from what you've had in other places because, you know, you had these kind of aggressive children that were making it hell. But also when you kind of interacted with some of the locals, it, you know, there was kind of like this feeling of they're trying to get something from me. Um, would you say kind of the people aspect was one of the hardest things because it just wasn't as straightforward as it had been in other places where you'd, you'd biked? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, there were some people that, you know, they tried to develop friendships with with me for an ulterior motive. Of course, they wanted money at the end. But on the other hand, I developed some really, really great friendships, you know, just people that were very, very pure, so kind and so sweet, just opening up their home and and wanting to help me in every way. And just they wanted a cultural experience uh, and just to pure friendship, which is the greatest part of of tour cycling for me, like I mentioned before, is the, the friendships that you can make uh, with people that you wouldn't have if you're zooming by on a bus or a plane. So yeah, the people were a challenge, but it was like hell and heaven every single day. I call it life experience at an ex- accelerated rate, like 10 years of life experience in, in three months, based, or in a month and a half. So <laughs> it was great. I learned so much. I mean, writing the book just gave me time to digest everything that happened and really think about it in a more uh, at a deeper level and um, figure out, you know, what can come out of hard times and how humans can grow despite hardships. Um, So it was, yeah, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I would go back in a heartbeat. There was one one point where uh, you made friends or relationship with a local. I can't remember his name, but he asked you to be his god, the godfather to his child. And then when you got back home, he started asking for money. And you had an interesting take that you know the approach of kind of collectivism and helping your family or helping close friends, asking for money or sharing money. If you have a bit more, you give it to somebody who was a bit less. That originally it kind of rubbed you the wrong way, but you know then you step back. And it, I thought that was really useful because I you know. When I first read them, I'm like, oh, that's, oh, there was an ulterior motive, but maybe it wasn't. Maybe it's an aspect of just culture, you know, we don't understand because we come from very individualistic cultures. Um, but I'm interested. Are you still friends? You know, I, I know you mentioned you'd, you t- you talk with them regularly, but uh, is it three years on, four years on, you're still chatting? Yeah, yeah. With that that uh, friend of mine, yeah, he, so the backstory is we met in a cafe and I was tired from cycling and he just approached me and said, hey, come to my home and let's have coffee and a meal. And so um, so we we had some great conversations. He was really a sharp guy and really nice. And he invited he introduced me to his whole family. And and so I stayed with him for about five or six hours just talking and meeting with some of the neighbors. And then after I got home, he 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 asked me to be the the godfather of his of his unborn child and um and i was doubtful i said you know i don't think i'm qualified for this role i don't know much about ethiopian culture i'm just a guy on a bike here that's you know trying to see the country and and meet some people you know i think you have friends that you've known your whole life that would be better to fit this role than me than and uh, he, he just insisted that, no, you're the guy for this role. You should be the godfather of my kid. Uh, we're just going to be good friends. That's all you have to do. And, uh, and so I said, you know, I'm, I don't have children. I, haven't, I don't have any plans to have children. I mean, it would kind of 
take away from my adventurous lifestyle. So, uh, so I thought, okay, well, all right, maybe, maybe I'll give this a shot. You know, I'm, I'm a teacher and maybe we can have some, I can help in some way and share. We, there can be some cultural exchange there and uh, he can get a North American viewpoint and an Ethiopian viewpoint of life and it can help to develop the child in a way. So I, after some thinking, I said, okay, all right, let's do it and uh, I'll do it. And then uh, a few days later, sure enough, he asked me, asked me for a lump sum of money, a few, a few thousand dollars for a new computer. And uh, I just thought, okay, that, that's what's really going on here. I see. Uh, but yeah, it's, uh, it could be, you know, the collectivism here in South Korea, it's more common to ask your, your friends and family for money or to give your parents or family members money without much thought. Uh, so, so, and this is one of the most collective cultures in the world. So I thought, okay, maybe Ethiopia is similar and they're just... The godfather, even if it's an Ethiopian person, would maybe do that. It would just be an obligation. Uh, but so I, I don't I don't know. I'm just uh, I don't claim to be a cultural expert on Ethiopia. I was just a, a guy that was there for five weeks on a bike and trying to learn as much as possible in that time. And uh, it's impossible to know, really. Yeah. There's a nugget in there when you're traveling. Often we get confused by our kind of, you know, preordained thoughts of this is how we do it in Canada or in the States or in Korea or wherever. Uh, and often you step back, maybe what people are asking, what they're doing makes a lot more sense. Uh, I know I've learned a lot just traveling the world where you see, oh, there's a lot of different ways to solve the problems or do the things that we do. And you realize we just have one way of doing it. Maybe, and often it's probably not even the best way, but we're all used to it. Yeah, sure. I remember in Ethiopia, in that same village too, there was uh, an orphan child that ran into to my friend's home that asked me to be the godfather and he said see that child that child has no parents but we're all raising that child together like in the whole village so the kid would just run into one home get food from one house one day and then run into another home and get food from and then uh, sleep in one home one day and another home the other day so just raised by an entire village this child and uh I, it's it was really different to see that you know I don't know what would happen in North America with uh, if there was he would have to go to an orphanage or something I I don't think the the neighborhood would just say oh yeah you can just come in and we'll we'll all chip in it would be a, a lot different right so I don't even know most of my neighbors so uh, yeah I don't know what would happen here right right we've talked about some of like the challenging aspects of you know cycling in in Ethiopia. Um, but when you think back now, are there a couple memories or one memory that just kind of for you and encapsulates like why this was such a special trip? Sure, sure. Yeah. Um, like the title of the book is Hell in Heaven on a Bicycle. And that's really what it was. So one memory I have was on my way to Lalibela which is the, one of the biggest tourist attractions in Ethiopia. The road was exactly, is, was terrible. Just, just very mountainous, uphill, steep inclines. It was all torn up and in bad shape. And so I couldn't go very fast. And then the children just started like just 
chasing me like one one by one is <laughs> like every five minutes like five more children just appeared out of nowhere and ethiopia is the the second most heavily populated uh place in in africa so it was hard it's hard to get get any alone time there really at one point on my way to lalibela i had like about 30 children chasing me and they were all and it was on this switchback road with you know where if if you take a wrong turn or or anything i mean you're you're going to tumble down the mountain and uh and they were just grabbing on my panniers and like just pushing the bike and until the point where it was it was so hard to control the bike and um and then one at one point like my back rack just collapsed into my tire and just from the kids all all grabbing my bags and everything out in the middle of nowhere so i was i just stopped and and after that they they all stopped and kind of looked really sad and tried to fix it like all 30 of them so they went from like <laughs> harassing me and throwing stones and trying to steal stuff out of my bags to oh wait we better help this guy out and then and then they actually did kind of give me a temporary fix they helped me out and then I got back on the bike and it was the same thing over again. It's like, okay, now let's, <laughs> let's see if we can get stuff out of his bags. So it was just, uh, you know, they're, I just figured out that they're just trying to play, you know, and it's their way of playing is like harass this, this guy from the other side of the world on a bike. And, um, but the rock throwing along that stretch of road got really, really bad at one point. So I had to, to hitchhike i was just like forget this the town is like 40 kilometers away i'm just gonna find a truck and hitch so i hitched a ride to the town and uh, i just wanted to go into a hotel and just stare at a wall basically i was so mentally exhausted physically exhausted so i, I was like okay put my bike in the hotel go for a walk get some dinner and crash for the night that was the plan but i I was walking along along the road, trying to find a place to eat, and uh, and then I hear this voice calling from down below. Hey, hey, you, you, hey, come here. There's a wedding here, and there's a a, a wedding party, like uh, with about thirty or forty people, and uh, the guy that was yelling at me was a soldier, and he had all, you know, he was all these, uh, you know, he had a sister that he was trying to hook me up with, and and um <laughs> and all this amazing food and and coffee and just showering me with with plate after plate of injera and these vegetables and uh it was just amazing so i went it was like hell and heaven and uh and with a span of hours and that's uh that's basically a microcosm of the whole story right there the, you know hell and heaven every day so uh, you you did the trip solo, but you met up with another uh, bike tour partway through for a little while. Just describe like, you know, and I think you do most of your trips solo. Describe on this one where it was so hard, you know, was it nice to have someone else to cycle with for a little bit? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So about my my first day, actually, first day out of Addis Ababa. Uh, I met a guy who was cycling from Cape Town to Cairo, and he was obviously going through Ethiopia. Uh, a guy from Japan named Tetsuya, who appears as a character in the book. And um, 
And so he had been cycling from the Kenya border up north of Addis and sleeping outside all the time. And, and so I could really, you know, it was great to have him, him there on my first day, especially because he, you know, he had been on the road for quite some time and a lot of other countries in Africa and Ethiopia. Um, so he really kind of shared his experience and he was just trying to get the hell out of there, basically. <laughs> like that was his whole goal. <laughs> and he thought I was crazy for wanting to focus on Ethiopia and take it slow. He was just trying to get to the Sudan border and, uh, and get out of there. He's <laughs> like, I've had enough of this, like just getting rocks thrown at me all every day, all day. But he had really, like, I really admire him because he was... I don't know. He was just so calm through the storm, like kids throwing rocks at him and just no reaction. He would just put his, his headphones on and tune everything out and just, just keep going. And like a rock flies in front of his face and just, just keep going. <laughs> uh, whereas me, I'd, I'd stop my bike and do a U-turn and start yelling and, and lose my cool. <laughs> and, uh, and so anyway, yeah, it's, it was really incredible to see his, how he reacted to that. And uh, yeah, so I admire him for ma maintaining his, his cool in the midst of chaos. Yeah, You've done a, a lot of, you know, big journeys. Uh, there's lots of people who listen who have never done, you know, something. They've maybe done a bike tour in Europe, but they haven't gone to, you know, more challenging countries. And I'm interested in terms of your bike setup or your kit, is there any, you know, any suggestions of must-haves that you can make for someone who's just getting started in this or just looking to start doing, you know, longer bike bike tours? Yeah, the the one must-have is a bike, any kind of bike you 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 want to have. I mean, you don't have to my advice is don't worry about gear. Like I'm a guy that's a totally minimalist cyclist. I I mean, I went on my first trip with a $170 bicycle, the secondhand bicycle to the Pamir Highway, you know, and uh, with just a backpack. And there were a lot of other cyclists on that first trip uh, from Europe that that looked at me like, you're on a backpack with that bike? You're, you're crazy. So I became known as like the, the crazy American with the backpack. That was my like like nickname on, on that trip um so yeah i mean i've i just bought a smartphone recently i've kind of been i really get into you know just trying to soak in the entire environment with all of my senses not having not being unplugged and really you know just take a notebook and pen with me and try to scribble down some stories on a pad and paper and um so I would say you really don't need much. If you if you want to get out there, just get out there and you'll learn along the way what you need and what you don't need. For me, I don't I don't need much, but I've seen a lot of other people just carrying, you know, just the kitchen sink with them and if you want to do that, that's fine, but it's not exactly my style, you know. Yeah, George, it's it's interesting you mentioned about not focusing so much on the gear because uh I remember being in Africa about 20 years ago and talking to a German uh, bike tours going from Cairo to Cape Town and he had just this piece of junk bike he'd covered in like electrical tape and for his panniers he actually had cut off uh, like jerry cans 
and he had just tied them to his frame and he said they were fine unless it rained because obviously you know the jerry can would just fill up with water but he said the benefit is no one wanted his bike and you know the difference in performance when you're cycling for months on end it doesn't really matter so kind of similar to you he said the biggest thing was just getting there and i think he just picked up his bike in cairo i don't even think he even like brought it over he's like you know, I find a bike that looks good, that is good, you know, good chain and looks, looks well kept and you pay 50 or hundred bucks and that's good enough. Like it's not the bike, it's, it's you and the journey. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And that kind of, you know, if something happens to your bike, you don't have to, like the guy was saying, you don't have to worry about it. You know, your things, you get worried putting your bike in a box for your treasured bike from home that you spend thousands of dollars on and, you kind of rolling the dice and hopefully it makes it there in one piece. But I've heard quite a few stories of bikes getting damaged or stolen even on the road or, and uh, you know, rather than have that big heartbreaking experience, you know, for me, it's just, I'd rather not have to worry about it. And uh, you know, on quite a few of my cycling trips, I've, I haven't given away my bike, but I considered giving away my bike several times. Like if I couldn't find a box in time or in Uzbekistan at Tashkent, I had no box. I just rode my bike to the airport and uh, hoped that they would just let me put it on the plane with no box, nothing, no packaging. And, um, and I was ready to just give it to somebody, you know, because I didn't really care about the bike. It was it served its purpose for the trip. I, it was the best $180 investment I'd ever spent in my life. And, and, uh, I had to convince the lady to let me on, let the bike on the plane, put it in there as cargo and, and the baggage area. But, uh, after some debate, I finally was able to just put it on there from Tashkent to Seoul and, uh, in Uzbekistan and made it back. But, but it wouldn't have been a big deal if, if I would, had have had to give up the bike you know it's you know it is what it is somebody else would get a lot of a lot more joy than i ever would out of it i'm sure they'd appreciate it and i can just buy another bike when i get back you know it's almost like one of those things like we create these reasons why we can't do things we want to do and you know oh i i can't buy a touring bike or i can't you know it's subconsciously we want to or we want to do these things but then subconsciously we come up with reasons why we can't do it which actually you don't need a four thousand dollar bike you don't need you know eight hundred dollar panniers you don't need all this stuff you can do it it's just you know it's it's actually taking the plunge finding the time taking the time off work and and going to do it it's one of these we we make up excuses before we even start sometimes um, which I know I've done in the past and I hear lots of people, they can't follow their dreams for a reason, which seems really, really surmountable, really easily solved. Yeah. Yeah. You just have to get out there. All you need is, is a plane ticket and a passport and you can, you can go anywhere in the world. You know, you just, you can make it happen if you really want to do it. Don't let gear get in the way of, of, of your dreams, you know, just do it. So you're a, uh, bike touring uh, fan, I think it, it's fair to say. What keeps you going? You know, why do you keep choosing this type of experience? And I'm, I'm really thinking for people who haven't done it. You, you know, what's so addictive about this? Because it is, it's addictive. You know, people get doing this and it's kind of, yeah, this is how I want to travel. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I used to backpack quite a bit and, uh, you know, just public transit and going on trains and buses. Uh, but, you know, 
I've always been like an active guy, enjoyed exercise. I exercise every day. If I don't get out there and get moving, I, I, I really feel like something is wrong, you know, <laughs> if a day goes by where I don't do something active. And uh, it was just a way for me to combine my two passions of exercise and, and travel. And, and I've always enjoyed, you know, the slow pace and, and talking to the people more than really the big tourist attractions. Um, and I, just getting to know a country that way and getting off the beaten path and being on a bike allows you to do all of those things and, and really just be outdoors as well. Um, sleep out, I sleep outside and I get myself aligned with nature. You know, when the sun goes down, I pitch the tent and go to sleep. And when the sun comes up, I'm, I'm up again. And I just come back from these trips, you know, as tiring as they sound, you know, it sounds tiring to cycle around a mountainous country and, and have all these challenges, but I really come back refreshed from my trips. And, um, and I'm, I teach here in Seoul at a university, and I really have a new vigor for my everyday life here. Really replenishes my spirit, and um, and yeah, it's uh, it's just a great way to see the world and connect with others, and it helps you learn about the world and learn about yourself too. Because a lot of these places, I thought, okay, can I actually cycle the Pamir Highway with a hundred and eighty dollar bike? And the answer is yes. You just have to want to do it, you know, and you might be looking for like trying to repair your bike a lot, but that's just part of the story too. Now you have stories. So I just go in, go in with the attitude. What doesn't kill me can only make me stronger. You know, if I figured, okay, all these other cyclists, they went across Ethiopia too. And sure, they don't have good things to say about it on the internet, but surely, you know, there can be good in the bad, and um, and it and you and you just have to find your heaven amidst hell, and you can learn a lot and really grow from the experience. Uh, so it's just the the continual personal growth and and the love of exercise and being outside and travel that keeps me going. I love that answer, and I have heard some people say, "On a bike is the perfect speed." Because you have enough, you know, you can go far enough that if you have to get to a town or you have to get somewhere, you can make it there in a, in a day and almost any time. And, you know, you can actually go through the boring parts and, you know, make a bit of pace. And yes, there's some stretches of roads that are not great. And so being able to do that stretch in an hour or two is way better than walking it where you might spend a whole day in this kind of mundane, you know, urban jungle. Um, but I liked how you talked about the meaningfulness as well. It's just a way to find a lot more meaning and, you know, learn about yourself, learn about other people that you can't do. You know, if you go to the big city, no one wants to talk to you. You're never going to get those types of experiences, uh, but you do get them on a bike in these, you know, small villages. Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. And if you ever try walking, going on a walking trip, I mean, cycling is just the perfect speed. Like you said, I mean, you can get yourself out of any place and, uh, and your feet aren't, aren't as sore. Your butt might be a little sore, but it's really not that bad. A good thing with cycling is you. I always find that I recover really well, even from a long day on the road, just a, a nice night's sleep and I'm ready to go the next day, you know, you can recover. Whereas if you're walking, you might have you, the joints are a lot more sore, blisters and everything. So 
So it's good to, for long distances in that regard too. George, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast today. I loved hearing your stories. I loved reading your book. It was, you know, one of those books where I'd, you know, finish work and go down and read some and, you know, at night, you know, be lying in bed and just reading, you know, I, I it was, you know, really honest uh, portrayal. Uh, so it was great to hear more about your trips. And again, thanks for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks. Uh, and if you want to get more inspiration, I'm going to put a link to uh, George's book. It's available on Kindle, uh, which is a really easy way to download and start reading it this weekend. Uh, and I'm also going to share, he has a great podcast called the Intrepid, Intrepid Global Citizen Podcast, uh, which has some phenomenal guests telling some really interesting stories. Uh, it's available on all major podcast platforms, but I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. Uh, and with that, thanks for listening to this episode of the 10 Adventures podcast. We'll be back next week to explore the world and hear about more epic adventures. Listen to other episodes of the 10 Adventures podcast on Amazon Music at amazon.com slash 10 adventures.